a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Nathan Rome is with you. We are coming up to Remembrance Day, and I've got a number of guests lined up to talk about service and sacrifice. We are going to talk about their experiences in training and deployments, the memories, the people, and impacts of service. I've also got co-host retired Sergeant Ben Click with me. Ben is a 20-year veteran of the Canadian Army. Now he teaches mental management and marksmanship for military, law enforcement, and civilians. He is the owner of Sierra 64 Riflecraft. And he previously appeared on the podcast, uh, Season 1, Episode 16, and the first of our Remembrance Day series from 2022. And today, our guest is Chance Burles. Chance was born and raised in southern Alberta. He joined the Canadian Armed Forces in 2005, where he served for eight years as a combat engineer with one combat engineer regiment. Chance deployed to Afghanistan for an eight-month tour in 2008, and then did some time as a recruit instructor. Eventually, he retired at the rank of Master Corporal in 2013. Chance is an advocate for veterans and co-founded the Canadian Walk for Veterans. He also created the podcast, Tools for the Toolbox, to assist with the sharing of information between veteran groups and the vets themselves. Now he resides in Sherwood Park, Alberta. He's there with his family, and he's one of the hosts for the podcast known as The Collective, which is a live, hour-long discussion on a variety of subjects, and they've had on a ton of guests from all walks of life, so check that out, and I'll put up a link uh, when we get this episode up. So uh, welcome, Ben and Chance. Thanks for having me. It'll be good. Hey, good to be here, man. Um, so yeah, I'm glad we can get you in here. Uh, I've been looking forward to chatting with you because uh, I've actually seen a whole bunch of your your shows here. Um, oh, nice. Sometimes I kind of I'm when I'm working and I try to watch some of the live stuff. <laughs> so I might have like five minutes while I'm sitting in a uh, cruiser and I get to flip yeah. on the the show, but. Uh, yeah, I really like what you're doing out there and and helping people out yourself. So, uh, really cool stuff. So, um, but maybe we'll kind of start at the beginning and uh, let's talk about you. So, tell us about yourself. All right. Well, like you said, uh, born born and raised in Southern Alberta. So, like I was born in Calgary, but then I moved around a bunch. So, like Lethbridge and Claire's home and. Uh, Pitcher Creek and my dad's side of the family owned a ranch down there. So, you know, on the ranch, off the ranch, back and forth kind of thing all over the place. And uh, it was just a really, looking back on it now, I realize now that like I had no sense of attachment to anything because we were constantly moving place to place to place. So it was like, oh, we got to go somewhere? Cool. Where are we going? Oh, we're going somewhere else? Cool. Now we'll go there. And the uh, the concept, the life of the the military kind of it felt right. That whole concept of just being able to like move from point A to point B. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now we're here. Oh, now we're going to there. Oh, okay. Now we're going over there. Um, so I remember at a very, very young age, I was like, I want to be in the army. And I got a picture of myself, um, when I was four, I wearing this, uh, all of drab green sweatshirt that says army across the front of it. <laughs> I just, I was 
super stoked. I used to stand a uh, sentry on top of my uh, my treehouse just with a pop gun, just standing there, staring out <laughs> in the distance. <laughs> Thought I was hard. Yeah. So lots of fun down there. He's a natural. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Up until I realized like what you actually have to do, like <laughs> how much it sucks to sit there on sentry. Which is often standing on a treehouse and with your pop gun. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. At six, it was super cool. At 26, it was less cool. <laughs> you know? um, but yeah, so did uh, spend a lot of time in Calgary, though. I think uh, I think spent nine years total in Calgary. You know, did junior high, high school, all that good stuff. Played some sports. Yeah, you know, I was... Um, it's interesting because I look back on it now and I look at my uh, my childhood as... I never really had to try that hard to do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it sounds kind of like it'd be simple, like a, as a natural, um, maybe natural athlete. What I would pick up a sport and I'd be pretty good at it right away. And I would pick up something else and I'd be pretty good at it right away. So nothing ever really challenged me all that much, which actually affected me negatively later on in life because I didn't understand how to deal with those challenges. I understood what work was. Okay. Like I could work and I could work hard, but I never really had difficulty doing it the testing of limits yeah exactly so it was just oh this is simple okay cool and then because we would move a lot we went to a new place so i'd have to pick up something new so i never had that in-depth um Mm -hmm. you know having to work at anything for any period of time because i was just oh yeah i'm pretty good at it okay cool next move on to the next job yeah kind of deal so it uh it applied well when i became an engineer but not so much (laughs) <laughs> for the rest of my life but at that point in time so um yeah when i again always wanting to be in the army my brother called me one day after i had i think lost another really crappy job after high school and uh i was like yeah i don't really know what i want to do and he's like are you gonna join the army you've been wanting to since you were like able to walk and i was like yeah i guess i mean i could but then and he's like well what's stopping you and i was like Actually, nothing really. Like, I, yeah, I don't know why I haven't done it yet. And he was just like, "Well, then, freaking do it." So, I, so, what was he doing at this time? Uh, so he was he was actually in Korea at that point in time. He went to teach English in okay. South Korea. So he's also, I guess, I skipped over that whole portion of my family. <laughs> uh, I have a brother and a sister, uh, both older than I am. The I'm the youngest of three, and so yeah, my brother went to. Um, study in Korea, but he's uh, he he did Taekwondo since he was really little. So he was like, "Oh, I get to uh, all right, I get to go to Korea and learn how to do Taekwondo, and then get paid because I'm going to be a teacher there." Yeah, made sense. Yeah, all right, I'm down. So yeah, he, yeah. So he he was over there at the time, which really kind of kicked me in the butt to like just do something, just do something. Yeah, and then so I signed up in uh, initially in 2003. And uh, there's a kind of a funny story to that one. <laughs> I had to wait an extra 18 months to get into the, the military because um, when I did my substance use form, mm. the uh, <laughs> the initial one when you first get in, I was totally honest because in my mind I thought, man, like they're probably going to piss test me as soon as I walk out of here. <laughs> like whatever <laughs> I write down here, that's what I expected to happen, and uh, they didn't. But I was totally honest and I'd written down uh, the fact that I'd taken some mushrooms at one point mm. and 
couldn't remember when. So I was like, yeah, it's like 18 months ago. That should be fine. Yeah, it's about a year and a half. Yeah, sure. That's about right. And as soon as they picked it up, they're like, hey, yeah, it's got to be three years minimum. Wow. Three years. Separation between any time. Yeah. So any for any psychedelics at all. Yeah. So uh so yeah i did i signed up in 2003 and then had to come back in 2005 and i was all like pumped i was like fine i'll see you in 18 months and i showed back up 18 months to the day put my paperwork in I'm like yeah see i told you i'd be back and they looked at me like i don't know who you are yeah <laughs> been a whole new posting season right? <laughs> everybody cleared out so did uh, um yeah did, did you have any family that was in military previously or anyone that kind of influenced you in any way because you're saying that at four years old you kind of knew this but was grandparents, parents, anyone? Uh, yeah, my kind of the role model for that. Uh, kind of. My granddad on my mom's side was he was a combat engineer in World War II, and mm. he never talked about the war while I was young. There were little things that we would get, you know, here and there from offhand comments or stuff like that, but no real direct, like, this is what I like. I never really saw it. Yeah. In order to want it, it was just one of those things, like. You know, um, watching GI Joe, and <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you think being a being a soldier looks freaking cool. You watch any of the commercials back in the '80s and the early '90s, like the army was, it was like nonstop fun. You're yeah. running from place to place. You're doing all the things. You're like tossing stuff. You're shooting things, explosions, all that good <laughs> stuff. So, you know, as a kid, when you're six, seven years old, and you're like, that sounds like the most amazing day. And I could do that every day. Yeah. Sign me up right now, right? Not quite like that in real life, but <laughs> well, I've said that about um, even the policing, right? Like, and, and they talk about a lot of recruiting issues now. But I, I say, like, the, I remember when I was growing up, it's like you see all the uh, police dogs and the helicopter and you know the cool cruiser going fast, and mm-hmm. you're watching Lethal Weapon and Die Hard, and you're like, I want to do all that. <laughs> so. Obviously not realizing how dangerous that stuff would be or how the real job is. But yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Like it, it, it just, it stokes the imagination and it really appeals to like a young male at least because you're out there and you want to test yourself and you kind of got that drive and that fight in you. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. It, uh, you know, speaking of <laughs> retention and uh, recruiting, I mean, it's obviously a problem right now, but I remember... It was never really, it was never like a, you can do it. Mm. That was never the messaging, right? It was not like, everybody can be a part of this. It was, it was always, are you good enough? Yeah. Do you have what it takes? That kind of stuff. And I remember just that messaging as a young man, I remember just being like, yeah, I'm right. I have what it takes. Like, <laughs> yeah. Who are you to tell me I don't have what it takes? I'm going to show you. And it's just that, that mentality of, um, that aggressive, like really, I'm just going to go get whatever I want kind of mentality that serves well when you're a 20 year old and they hand you a you know machine gun and explosives and they're like, yeah, man, <laughs> go on over there, do those things for us. Yeah. So it, it serves well in that point, but it's uh, a <laughs> it is it's a weird environment in the military to say the least. And just on your your grandfather there, I, do you think there's a reason that? Um, Maybe he didn't talk about stuff because I, I hear that quite a bit about most of the World War uh, veterans. And we were talking about this yesterday, Ben. Um, even more so on the Canadian side, 
if you get Americans and you talk to them, like they're pretty good at telling you all the things they've done and where they've been. And it, it, it's very cool. But yeah, the Canadians are like very reserved about this and don't really open up about a lot of that. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that. And I think a lot of it has to do with the, uh, with the British background, mm-hmm. right? The, the Brits are naturally reserved in the fact that because Canada was a colony for so long that like there is this kind of mentality of just, okay, it happened, cool, forget it, move on. Okay, yeah. Like, it's just on to the next thing. It doesn't matter at this point. And so I think that's where a lot of that not wanting to talk about it. I mean, also, <laughs> looking back on it and listening to my my parents talk about their childhood, my granddad was in the like the throes of PTSD for decades, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Absolutely no doubt in my mind that he was suffering for many, many years. And him and I actually had a conversation after I got back from Afghanistan that he was, he thought himself a coward for 70 plus years. Never talked about it to really anybody uh, up until he was in his 90s when we got the story out of him eventually when him and I had that conversation and he, he was like, they called for volunteers one day to go up to the front and he didn't put his hand up. Mm. And that, like, that's why he thought he was a coward for 70 plus years. And it doesn't matter like the service that he was there for you know, a number of years, the fact that he was fixing railroads and demining de- areas and all these things that are like seriously dangerous. Yeah. He didn't see, uh, he just didn't see it. It was crazy. Yeah, and even something as small as that, I guess you would say, like just that one little incident in that whole timeline, you know, how that kind of makes you think uh, about yourself. So Yeah, and and then to not talk about it Mm -hmm. at all, right? Like, (laughs) and I have no doubt, like he has the, uh, just from his medal system, he doesn't have uh, a ton. Again, Canada's not great at giving medals, but yeah. So like, I know he saw combat in Europe just based on the metal system, metal set that he has. But I also know randomly, uh, my brother, I think, was going through the attic at one point in time. And he found a Italian army issued, Italian army issue knife. Okay. And we asked him about it. And we're like, where did you get this? And he's like, well, the guy who had it didn't need it anymore. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And we were like, oh, <laughs> okay. Um, and that he didn't say anything else about it. It was just one of those mm-hmm. statements that we kind of, you kind of read into a little bit and you're like, well, I think I know what that means, but uh, weird. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, um, yeah, he definitely was suffering through many, many years of that, unfortunately. And then by the time I was, time I actually joined the army, he told me, he gave me two pieces of advice for the army. It was like, first, join the Air Force. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what are you talking about? I like, I, I like camping. I like being outside and I like guns. And he was like, Okay, sure. Second one, don't volunteer for anything. Mm. And I was like, isn't that kind of the opposite of volunteering for the military? Like, <laughs> if you're volunteering <laughs> to be in it, wouldn't that be the opposite? But uh, those two pieces of advice were quite interesting because there was a point in time, I think I was in Gagetown, New Brunswick, and it was like pouring rain, and I was in a swamp, and <laughs> we were in trenches. And I was like, yeah. I get it now, the Air Force, right? <laughs> I get it, they're in the office tower over there, you know, in their chairs. So, But, uh, but yeah, it, it, I, he, was, he was definitely a role model for me at one point. Like, as I became older and I actually understood what he did 
what the job was like, that's when I started going, oh, okay, that's like, I, I know what it, what it means to be an engineer now. But as a young kid, when I first wanted to be in the army, there was never any like thinking about it. I don't think there was anything other than GI Joe. Yeah. I love GI Joe. <laughs> <laughs> did you, um, did you, were you always kind of geared toward, um, the engineering side of things like building things or, you know, working with your hands or were you always, were you always like, I want to go and be in the super secret special forces of whatever Canada's got. No, I, uh, I really, from a very, I have a very mechanical mind. So everything is, uh, any, any of my toys at a young age, I took apart immediately just to see how they work. <laughs> yeah. And then I put them back together again. And, and it was always that, um, I, I really liked understanding how things worked because once I knew how it worked, then I could replicate it somewhere else. So I could, you know, and, and at a very young age, again, being, you know, being on the ranch, you have to figure out how to do stuff all the time. Right. So I watch people fix their tractors and I would watch people weld and I would watch people do all these very physical manual labors type things, but it was all very, still very technical because it has to be done right. Cause it's going to be out in the field for the next 20, 30 years. Right. So it's, uh, I did always kind of have that mind of like, I just, I need to figure out how these things work. And then I started building things at a young age too. And I was like, Ooh, I can actually make stuff mm -hmm. like out of other stuff. Okay, cool. And so I started, uh, doing that stuff. And then when I, when I actually got to the military and I started looking at the jobs, the one thing <laughs> I, I giggle about this now, but there, I saw, you know, I looked at the infantry and I was like, sweet machine guns and mortars and running around good times. And then I saw, you know, armored core and I was like, Ooh, tanks are pretty sweet. But, and then I thought about it cause it looks like a giant tractor too. So I was like, that's going to be a lot of maintenance. Like <laughs> it's going to be fixing stuff all the time. I'm like, I don't really want to do that. Um, and then I remembered my granddad being an engineer and I was like, well, they deal with mines. Mines have explosives. I do like blowing things up let's take a look at that. And then they were like, yeah, so you walk around, you get to do all of the things that the infantry do and you get all the explosive work and you get to build things. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> Why wouldn't I? How Get out of my brain, man. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's perfect sense. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that's where I, I went to the engineers at that point. And I just, once I knew that, that that was the job, I was like, I'm in. Whatever you need me to do, I'm in. And then, uh, yeah, once I actually got into the military, did all the training and all that stuff. The thing that I loved about the explosive work, actually more than anything, was the math. And it sounds weird. I'm a mm, bit of a math yeah. guy, but like I love the fact that explosives are basically controlled chaos. You have, you know, um, once you set off an explosive, it is chaos. It like anything can happen at that point in time because you're you're energetically expanding everything in a certain area. So you never really can, it's very hard to tell what's going to happen once you set that charge up. But if you do the math correctly ahead of time, then you know exactly what's going to happen and you can make it happen the way you want it to happen. So like if I want yeah. to blow a door in, you know, and I want that door to bounce around on the inside of those walls, I can set up a charge to do that. Or if I want that door to, you know, disintegrate, I can set up a charge to do that. And if I want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. you know, I can do whatever yeah. I want with it. Using chaos, it's it's such a cool thing. I I still love doing it. I wish I could do it still, but uh, they took all my C four away. Yeah. <laughs> when you as a kid, were you uh, were you good at math? Like, was that your subject? 
It was one of them. Yeah. I, again, like I said, I have kind of a mechanical brain. So when, uh, when I first started doing math, it makes perfect sense, mm. right? This piece plus this piece equals this piece. Yeah. If you take seven of these and you multiply them by 20 and then you get that, right? Like it all just made sense to me because it, um, the rules never changed. Yeah. They're always yeah. the same. So once you knew the rule set, simple, easy peasy. I mean, it's the same thing with carpentry. Once you know the rule set, which is certain wood reacts in a certain way to certain things. Well, okay. Then uh, now I know what wood I want to use for this project in order to do this thing. And it's, so it's very, at least in my mind, it's quite mechanical. It's pretty easy. To, uh, yeah. And, and then it also explains things. So like I said, when I, when I was young and I would, um, and I would take apart my toys, it was so that I could understand how they worked. And then once I understood that, cool, I can replicate it. Math is the same thing. Once you understand how something works, you can replicate that. Oh, you can do it again and again and again and get the same result. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it worked out quite well for my brain. <laughs> <laughs> what about, um, so I kind of want to go back a little bit to your uh, application and mm -hmm. when you're looking at getting in, so because you, so you said you went through twice or tried applied twice. Um, yeah. What were you telling your parents at this time? And like, are they, I imagine they know you're kind of geared toward this, but what happens when you don't get in the first time? Do you tell them why? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, they knew. Like, okay. so <laughs> the funny thing is, is my, uh, my mom's like a hippie, uh, like, like a, a straight up hippie. You look up hippie in the dictionary, you, you picture my mom. <laughs> so, like, uh, and so it's kind of hilarious because I, you know, I wanted to be in the army and she was pretty against military service in general. And, uh, but when I told her I was going to sign up, she was like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Cause like I've been wanting to do it forever. Um, and she supported me, made sure that I had the, uh, the time, the opportunity to do the stuff I needed. The actual, one of the benefits was the, uh, the 18 months really gave me was the fact that I, I had time to train because I didn't train at all beforehand. I was just, you know, generally healthy, I guess. To say. So you're talking physicality, like working out yeah. and stuff. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, <clears throat> never having to really dive into any one sport for any long period of time. I never really built uh, like a background in activity. It was just I would play whatever at any point in time doing anything. Yeah. So I never really went to the gym. I never really went for runs. I was just always capable of doing it without any real um, depth of understanding or knowledge. So you, uh, you think that your life on the ranch kind of provided for a lot of that oh yeah 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 that that was just like you you work until the job's done right like yeah you work on his work yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly you, you, if you've met a square bale you, you've met reps yeah 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 exactly <laughs> and and i mean some of my earliest memories um out on the ranch i think i was i would have been really really little but my granddad was like 70 and he was just tossing hay bales over his shoulder onto the truck and just yeah. walking along <laughs> and hundreds of them yeah no stops, no breaks, just go and go, go. Get her done. And, yeah. And that, uh, that same mentality of just like, okay, well, there's work to do. You work until it's done. Once it's done, chill out. Everything's cool. Right. <laughs> so, um, you're at, yeah, absolutely. That was definitely part of the ranch. And then, um, uh, so, but yeah, that 18 months, it gave me a time to actually train because then I started taking took the time to actually like figure out what I need to do. So I need to ruck. Okay, well, put a backpack on and I'll walk 17K 
and come back. Yeah. And like the next day it hurt, but I was like, okay, I can do that. Um, let's go for a run. And that's where I started. I was like, okay, well, my running is not up to par. I need to increase that. So every day I would do a little bit more, do a little bit more stuff like that. Push-ups, sit-ups, all those, you know, the standard things so that I wasn't going to have a, a struggle once I got there. That was the big one was that I just didn't. The first time I signed up, I had no idea what I was getting into. I This is what I expected. It was from like, you know, if you watch the movie Stripes or any of the old army movies, you walk in, you sign up, you walk out the back door, there's a bus, you get on the bus, it takes you to the recruiter. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Like, that was my mentality. The whole concept in my head was like, um, just as soon as you show up, you're going to be gone. But even the physical standards, like it, I don't think they're, they're not something that makes you think you need to come in and be like a, an endurance athlete, right? Like it's just, yeah. hey, do this many push-ups, this sit-ups, and maybe pull-ups is in there. And that's like it, right? They give you like a real basic uh, yeah. uh, goal, I guess, to get to. So it doesn't make you think yeah. like, oh, I got to come in and be super fit. So, Yeah, and, and it was, I think it was, it was like 19 push-ups. It was like uh, 20 or 25 set. Like it wasn't hard. Yeah. By any means. yeah. And, uh, and I think it was a, and it was a 2.4 K run or something like that in under 19 minutes. Like it was, it was not hard. It wasn't something that was outside of my limits. I just, I realized that I hadn't taken any time to put myself in that position to see what it was like. I didn't know if I was going to pass or fail because I'd never actually tried it. And then once I started training for that extra 18 months, that gave me a pretty good... So when I showed up for basic, I was in pretty good physical shape. And then um, what surprised me the most was when I got to basic and there was, there was a lot of people that were not, <laughs> were not physically uh, in shape enough to be at basic, let alone at the next subsequent courses that get harder and harder as you go. So You got to remember though, Chancel, a lot of those people weren't headed in the same path that you were. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they, they, they were going to the air force, Yep. you know, cause recruit training is, is not just army. It's army, Navy and air force all together because yes. we're Canada. Yeah. yeah. But this, but this is what kind of tweaked me a little bit. And when I became a recruit train, like when I was teaching recruits, I, I totally understood that you, when you have people coming in that are, you know, I'm going to be a Navy mechanic. They're not thinking that they're going to be, you know, running from trench to trench to engage in, in direct combat i totally understand that but there was like there were people that showed up that couldn't run 3k and that just like <laughs> like you didn't get ready at all at, yeah even in the slightest bit and that's it really tweaked my uh my concept of what i was getting into because again i i was just i had no prior experience as to what like to draw from in that kind of scenario so I, you know, and this is, I, I look at it as a, a really great learning experience in terms of like, I, um, it gave me the ability to actually engage with other people that I had abs- nothing in common with. I had no concept of their background and, it, you know, being in a country, small town, everybody has kind of the same background, <laughs> you know, you coming from, um, and especially moving around a lot. I, I never really had time to be one of the people. So that, that's one thing I've heard about um, military service in general or army. Like you, it's people from all walks of life. 
And then there's people who've had, you know, criminal past to people who've lived like a super sheltered life and their parents are doctors or whatever it could be. Um, like it's one of the great, uh, say it's like a great equalizer in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and, but it, it brings together everybody and you're working toward a common goal, right? Because you're working as a team, not so much the individual identity necessarily, right? You share that on the back end with your, your troop mates or squad mates or whatever it might be. But um, first and foremost, you're, you're a team and you're yeah. working toward accomplishing something, right? So yeah, that's a really good aspect of the army, at least what it kind of used to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's still like that today. And I don't mean to disparage the people that, um, that showed up unprepared by no means I don't want to do that. It's the fact that what, what I was trying to get at was the fact that it like, it challenged my worldview. Yeah. Immediately from day one, I was just like, wow, I didn't even think that was possible. Okay. I'm one of the, there's a great example was when I was on my, uh, threes course on my trades training for engineering was, uh, we have to get tested on everything. Right. So initially I thought this was kind of silly at the time. They were like, Welcome to your hand tools class. Here is a claw hammer. Here are the safety features of a claw hammer. Here's how it works. And like, literally, this is a class. Like, we're sitting there and I'm like, why are we, like, seriously, a friggin' hammer? And there was a kid taking notes. (laughs) He'd never used a hammer before in his life. It was, and he got the nickname Lightning pretty quickly because he could never hit the same place twice. And uh, (laughs) it it was pretty funny, but... I had never, like, it blew my mind at the time that somebody had never touched a hammer before. Yeah. That, that, and let alone, and then they were like, here's an arc welder. I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. And they're like, wow, you, you're pretty good at this. You have experience. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, doesn't everybody? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah doesn't everybody, right? That's that, well, that's what, all right, like, I had no experience yeah. to draw from in that because everybody I knew, they knew how to use how ta- they knew how to use power tools. They knew how to use regular tools. They could build stuff. They could take stuff apart. They were mechanically inclined because they had to be. So, it uh, it really did. It really challenged my worldview. And you know, again, talking to people from the east coast to the west coast to anywhere in between, from the north, like all over the place. So, it was it was quite the experience. I would recommend it. Yeah. Well, I would recommend you know anybody, especially uh, younger people, go do some service. So yeah. get a get an appreciation for the world out there. Um, so can you tell us a bit about uh, like you go through your application, um, you kind of get the okay, let's go ahead, we're gonna accept you, <laughs> and then yep. from that point on, like how long is it between application before you're in, and then talk a bit about training. Yeah, so I, I say this, I got the dream. I, at the time, I was friggin' impatient as hell, but the uh, I got the dream of what everybody wants. I signed up. I swore in in December of '05, and I was in basic training in January of '06, and so it was like a couple of weeks, and I was there. Okay. And then I did my, um, I did my basic, which was 13 weeks, and then I had a couple of, a couple of weeks, I think, in between that and my, my SQ, my soldier qualification, which is like the army side of the house. So. The way the CF is broken down is you have basic training, which does all arms. So you have Army, Navy, and Air Force, as Ben was saying earlier, all together doing basic training. After basic training, you move into a um, an element training. So you have Army training, you have Navy training, and you have Air Force training. 
So the Navy guys go to the Navy school and they learn how to, you know, shine their boots and wear 17 different uniforms and all that good stuff. And then the, uh, the Air Force guys learn how to use a swivel chair, you know, all that good stuff. And then the <laughs> Army guys go out to the field and we learn how to do Army stuff. You know, you machine guns and grenades and radios and all the stuff that we need to know as the Army. And then once you're done that, then you move into... Uh, your trade training, which is, you know, you go to the infantry school or you go to the armored school, you go to the engineer school, you go to the artillery school, you learn how to do your job. And so we, I went from basic, I think it was 13 weeks. Then I had two weeks off, not really off, but, uh, in between courses and then did my SQ, which is six weeks. And then did, uh, another, I think it was like three weeks between that and my threes course. And so I went through all of my training from January of 06 to October of 06. And then I was in my unit by, um, I think it was a, I think a week after that, three or four days, well, October of 06, I was at my unit. We got stood up for tour in 07, did all my workup <laughs> immediately. And then I went overseas in 08. So it was like this, it was just course, 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 course. And it, that's not common. Okay, I was going to ask, like, is that a, a common, like, how fast that went through? Like, it, it, you know, all no. the training, the basic right through. So that That's a very quick pace yeah. where you got through. So, and that, that's why I say, like, I, I got the dream because it was, it was such a, such a fast pace. Usually, like, there were guys that I showed up. You have a thing called PAT Platoon, which is personnel awaiting training. And so you're just kind of on hold in between courses. Because they can't just continually run courses all the time. We don't have enough people to have those things run all the time. You got to wait until you get enough people to run a class. And then that class moves forward and carries on. But, um, but normally, you know, you do your 13 weeks of basic and then you get put on a pat platoon somewhere, wherever your next course is going to be. And then you could wait there two, three, five, six, ten 10 weeks easily on pat platoon waiting for a course to load up, depending on how active your trade is so if there's lots of people going into that trade like the infantry run pools kind of all the time um whereas some of the more um like mechanics th those are they're big courses but you don't have a ton of people getting in the army to be mechanics so there's a lot of wait time like soak time in between those courses that are run um so yeah usually sometimes i'd say the average at least when i was getting in the average was like six weeks between a course and then sometimes it was longer, sometimes it was shorter. So the fact that I was jumping from course to course to course to course to course was very unusual. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that, you know, the summer of 06 was Operation Medusa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like in Afghanistan, what was going on right there? They were assaulting Kandahar. They battled the white school. All these things were happening while I was in training. And we actually got told regularly by our core staff, like, this is where you're going understand this you know, mm. we just lost three guys we just had an a10 strike friggin charlie come like it was laid out in front of us like you are going there is that um like at, at what point do you kind of realize like i'm really in the shit here like this is for real real is that when they're telling you these stories or is it when you're you know finally on a plane over there where's that for you um it got real, real. Um, there's so there was two, there's two points. There was when I was going through my training, and my uh, my staff came over, and they were like, uh, they got everybody together. They're like, yeah, we had some more casualties in Afghanistan. These are friends of mine. I want you to understand, this is not 
a game. And we all had like a solid sit down and the instructor told us about his friend and like it, it was personal. And we were like, yeah, the personalization of it. We we're like, okay, like that, that put us in the right mindset. Now, most of us, we were all like, okay, we understand. And like it applied to our training the, that next morning we were like, game on, we're going to work harder. We're going to work better. We're going to be smarter. We're going to be faster. We're going to make sure this doesn't happen. And then, uh, the second time was, uh, my first operation in Afghanistan, I think it was one of the, it was our first, <laughs> how many, we'd done like a dozen World War Point searches or something of different um, culverts and things like that. And we found my, like my, my first IED it was probably, that was the other like, okay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're, we're, we're here and it's real. And so that was, uh, it would be those two points were the, the lines in the sand of like step your game up and then step it up higher because now it's you're playing for everything so mm -hmm. it was uh it was an interesting thing but yeah so throughout the training period that was all about six and again consistently reminded you're going to afghanistan you're a combat engineer like <laughs> you're going to afghanistan there's no doubt about this and uh got to my unit october was six we reorged or like we stood up the, the squadron that was going to go overseas. My, I was on that name, so are on that list. So, um, January of 07, we started workup. And then it was again, course, 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 course. Like you're taking medical stuff. You're taking, you got to get all your calls for your machine guns. You got to get calls for your explosives. You got calls like, so it's courses, courses, you know, um, exercises, exercises. You're just, it was basically all year. I think that first year, I was probably home for maybe six or seven weeks, I think, that year of just okay. years constantly off somewhere, doing a course, running this, going there, doing these things. Did you have a uh, wife and kids at that time? No, I was just, I was a young single guy. I was 23 at that point in time, and okay. I was just ready to, I was ready to get after it. So yeah. we were, uh, <laughs> I had no problem. And again, like I said, like I moved around a lot. So when they were like, you're going to go here, I was like, okay. You're going to go here. Okay. Now you're going to go here. Okay. Yeah. It's easy for you at that point. <laughs> yeah. There were some people there that were like, yeah, I never get to see my family. <laughs> like, why do you have a family? Like, Come on now. You're in the army. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Again, it was young and dumb, but the, uh, uh, that was, yeah. 07 was, was crazy. Cause we were constantly doing stuff. We were in Shiloh. We were in the field. We were back to uh, Gagetown. Then we were back here at Edmonton. They were da, 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 da. It was just constant movement. Can you tell us about uh, the the training as an engineer? So obviously you're talking about IEDs, um, but what what else do you do in that trade? And then um, maybe on the IEDs, because a lot of people probably have questions on that, is how do you train someone to deal with those? Because do you get to actually ex you know blow things up up at the base or something? Yeah, so we do, uh, combat engineers are responsible for, uh, it's in our creed that we, uh, we assist friendly forces with living, moving, and fighting on the battlefield. Mm. So everything that's involved in that, the engineers deal with. So we can build fortifications. We can destroy fortifications. We can um, build bridges. We can destroy bridges. We can, like, anything we can build, we can get rid of. Um, so that involves all kinds of high explosives. You're talking, you know, if we want to destroy a road, okay, cool. We can set up cratering charges and 
put massive holes in the ground in you know a number of charges it's uh, super fun love explosives <laughs> um, we, but we also you know also that's just living on the battlefield now moving in the battlefield we can like i said we can build bridges we can make roads we can anything we can clear trees we can we can go to town yeah and then uh and deny the enemy the same so we can set up traps and set up booby traps lay anti-tank minefields all kinds of stuff um and then on the mine side of the house again we can lay minefields we can pull minefields we can blow up minefields we can do all kinds of things uh and then the ex um and then the fighting portion of it as well we have to be trained to a degree that we can work directly with the infantry because that's part of the job yeah so just to provide a bit of context for what what chance is saying is is if you take it all together it's a ton of work the engineers are the workers of the battlefield yeah like no joke yeah um they're expected to do all the the basic skills of the infantry plus they are like he says if they're not building something they're tearing it down uh, the joke was that you know commanders get nervous if engineers aren't uh, aren't working if they're sitting still then it's something's definitely wrong so the engineers are the ones that are tapped to do just about every task there is and honestly it sounds like it's yeah you know he's doing a good a good sales pitch there chance because <laughs> i'm <laughs> thinking like hey you get to you're out there you're out there with the infantry guys so if a firefight mm-hmm. starts happening you're doing that the one thing I'm just thinking is like, I just picture you're the guy with all the bombs strapped to him and you're right around. You're like, yeah, I don't want to be next to that guy when he, if he gets hit with something, because <laughs> that's the, the big explosion there. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, luckily C4 is actually quite, uh, quite stable. Yep. So yeah. I mean, you can, you can take around and stuff like that. I actually had those questions. A couple of engineer, uh, infantry guys asked me one day, they were like, so if you take some rounds in the back in your backpack, like, is that going to just explode? And I was like, yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> If, if I take one in the arm where my debts are, that'll probably go, but don't worry about that. Like, what? And it uh, came with this kind of fun thing. But uh, if, if that happens, you won't have a problem anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, yeah. And that's, you know, people have asked me about this in terms of IEDs and, you know, minefields and things like that. Is that um, they're like, well, how do, you, how do you just, how do you do it? Like, don't, are you scared? Are you freaked out? And I'm like, when it comes to high explosives, when it comes to mines and things like that, you either do it right or it's not your problem anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And they were like, but, <laughs> but like at, at the, at the root of it, like there was times where we would be, you know, prodding, which is how you work your way through a minefield. And you, you're taking this basically a stick, a metal stick. That's non, um, uh, yeah. And so, and you're just putting it in the ground and like every couple of millimeters, just to try and feel if there's anything in the ground in front of you. But if you actually set that off, your your face is like right there. Right there. <laughs> so, you know, they they say you keep your head down and the blast should go over top of you and I, I was like should? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Should? Yeah, but no, and they're but it, it's funny because that is it just the the guys that I know that deal with high explosives, it was never a question. It was just, yeah, you, you either do it right or and you don't have to worry about it. No, no. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's like a, it seems like a common thread through all the people we've talked to so far uh, or done these episodes with is no matter what job they're doing, like you're, you're running out there in the infantry or I don't know, just you're, some of the guys doing their special forces stuff. It's like, you're going into super high danger uh, situations, but you're kind of just 
um, what did the one of the guys said yesterday? Uh, like you're already dead. He kind of thinks of it like that. Like you're already dead. So, like I'm just going out there and, and just giving her. You know, I'm doing it safely and I'm I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. But yeah, it's kind of uh, an interesting mentality to get into. Yeah, it. You really have to. There, there's an acceptance for sure. Like if you can't accept the fact that you're putting yourself into a high risk situation, you're not any good there because mm-hmm. you're going to be freaking out. You're going to be thinking about everything else. Um, and the guys that I know all just like, it's work. Yeah. And you, okay. There's, there's mines in the road. Okay. Let's get to work. And then you're just, you get all your stuff and you wander over and you start doing your work and you, there, there's no depth to it, depth of thought to it. Yeah. If, if, if you don't accept that, you'd be crippled, paralyzed with fear. And the training, you know, sometimes our training was good, sometimes eh, not so good. Mm-hmm. But the idea was that you'd start with basic skills, then you work into like group teamwork skills, and then you do a simulation. Like you go out on an exercise and, and whatever it would be, you, you've already done that. So yeah. I think, in I know at least in my 19-year-old mind, mind was that like, Oh, this is happening for real now. Um, that's okay because it's going to turn out like this at the end, like the last time. Well, the yeah. last time we did it was at Wainwright, and the bad guys were like our friends. You know? <laughs> <If> you <laughs> they were shooting blanks. Yeah. When, it, when it's real, I, I think you're we're able to deny that that there's a reality to it that didn't exist in the simulation because all we ever know is the simulation. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. It is a. Um... And it's interesting that you put it that way too in terms of a simulation because it really is um, the make-believe kind of, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So when you first start, like even for shooting, you're on the range, right? We're going to be very static. No one's moving. The targets are over there. Shoot. So the make, you know, you have to kind of envision yourself like, ooh, is this going to be combat? No. And then you, you move up from the range. You start adding movement at the range. Now you got to run down. You got to go from the back and you run forward and then you got to shoot. And now you have some little bit of, now it's getting a little bit more realistic, less so imaginary. And then you go into, you know, shooting as a team. So you have parachuting. Now you got two guys running around with live ammunition. Now it's getting a bit more real. Targets are being put in places that they would be kind of in behind cover or in behind some sort of concealment or something like that. And you start to patrol you're starting to move and then like, oh, okay, oh, there's targets. And then you engage from there and then you start getting into section. And then you, and so you start as things progress, you what your ideal fantasy moment of just shooting on the range, like, oh, it's super simple. Bang, 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 bang. Gets slowly progressed into what it's going to be in real life. And one of my coolest stories from training <laughs> was, uh, we got to, we were doing a level seven battle run and level seven is, uh, battle group so you have everything tanks so it's a simulation right so you're oh, no, simulating was, actual operations yeah and it but it's still live fire mm-hmm. right so yeah, you're still using sure. live rounds but it is 100 percent simulation you but you have you know f-18s dropping bombs you have artillery bringing the bringing the rain in as you're uh moving forward on objective you got tanks shooting over top of your labs you got labs moving into position you got the engineer vehicles pushing through a breach there's salting forces you all get out and you start engaging targets into a town and all that is simulation in terms of like this is going to be your worst case scenario deal everything's going south we're bringing everybody to bear on this one particular target go yeah and then it's 
run into that simulation style of con- of like, well, what do you do now? Well, what do you do now? And then everyone's kind of, you got all the fluidity and all the confusion, all the gunfire and all the noise and all the people yelling and all these things happening. And it gets pretty crazy, but everything is just a step farther than the last time you did it. Yeah. So it's not like you just take someone off the street and go, jump into a level seven, see what it's like, have fun. Good Jay. You know, have, have, have a blast. No, it, it's staged over time that you just slowly level up. So it becomes, you know, slightly uncomfortable, but it's not like kind of yeah. freak out moment. And, uh, one of the coolest things I ever saw was <laughs> my buddy, my, uh, buddy of mine, he was my fire team partner at the time. We were rolling through the town in this particular, um, exercise. And the, the infantry were calling him like, Chimo's up, Chimo's up, we need a breach. And my buddy and I come running over and we got to cross this street in order to get to uh, the building that the infantry were calling us from. And we're about to run over and he's just, they're like, we need a breach, we need a breach, oh, breach is closed, breach is closed. My buddy's like, okay. He walks over, just like walks across the street, pulls his chainsaw from behind him, and just <laughs> cuts a hole in the wall. <laughs> And the infantry didn't skip a beat. They just stacked up on them. And as soon as that wall was even close to being falling in, they had already kicked it and were running. I was just like, yeah, I would say one of the coolest things. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's, it's almost like a level of art when you see things actually work properly. And like all of these things flow together, especially across different uh, teams or units. And like, it all just kind of comes together uh, at the right time, right? It, it's like, man, that is cool, right? Like, it's like watching a movie, right? Everything's set up to happen all these exact times. And it's like, this is happening right in front of you. So, yeah, that's a cool yeah, experience. It was, it was amazing. And we got to do stuff like that. This was the cool thing was that, like, people have said, oh, you know, thank you for your service. Really appreciate you doing time in the military. And I was like, dude, they paid me to blow stuff up. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in my head i'm like uh thanks for all the ammo <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly like i appreciate it you you guys supplied me with the c4 to get you know have fun with that stuff so it was uh it was a lot of fun i i really i enjoyed my time in the military for the most part there was a uh, the politics side of it and the interpersonal drama and the friggin i was really immature at the time i was dealing with my own traumas and stuff and like Leading up to Afghanistan, it was the greatest experience mm. because because of the speed and the just the op tempo was fast and we were moving and we were working and we were doing the job. We were everything that you want to do in the military that was happening through that build up and tour. And then we got home and it became peacetime army. Yeah. <sighs> and now we're dealing with drama and people in one office who don't like the other people in the other office and they start bickering. And that means that I have to now do more work because these guys are freaking like that kind of stuff where you're just office work. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> you know, yeah, came, that's uh, in every job so, now. Right. I mean, it's just, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's not like saying, okay, we need, we need a war, but people don't have enough to do in a day. You know, you get the idle hands starts causing a lot of different yeah. problems, right? You just, um, and that's, a, that's actually a common thing I've heard from anyone I've talked to in the military that, uh, at least on the Canadian side, it's like, we're not involved in enough things. And it's not like you always have to be the front line, uh, shooting, running and gunning, but like 
we're just not involved. And, and, you know, like you're saying that peacetime, uh, army, but like everyone's just sitting around. It's like, why aren't we going out and doing some more stuff, right? More than whatever it is we're doing apparently isn't enough. So, you know, get some people out there, but yeah, that's a common thing I've heard. It's, it's painful at times because you know, looking back on it, I, again, I was kind of impatient. So I was always looking for like, what's next? What's next? Okay. Well, what's next? Keep like, but it was a, it was like a feed me kind of mentality of just like, give me more, give me more. And I didn't realize, I didn't learn this until after I got out that the thing that I needed to be doing was what more can I do? Yeah. And it, it, that shift in mentality would have completely changed the trajectory of my career because I was just expecting things to come to me. Yes. Yeah. They they weren't. And so where, you know, I had trouble was when we got back from tour and I was dealing with my own stuff from, from tour. Um, and you know, all the stuff started, all the extra whininess that started to kick in started to make me bitter because I was like, well, what's happening? What is happening? Like, I just came back from two years of like, go, 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 go. And now we're having office drama. Like, what is this? This is garbage. And, you know, thinking that I knew better, obviously I didn't, but (laughs) that was, you know, that that's where you start to see this disconnect between what, what has just happened to what is happening now. And unfortunately, again, being in that mentality of like, where do, you know, what are you going to give me versus what can I give? definitely changed things because there were times where, you know, I thought I had a good idea and I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to run with this. And I bring it up to my chain of command. I'd be like, Hey, can we get some of this? Can we get this done? Cause is there any way we can engage in this particular training cycle or can we hit this or can we do these things? And they'd be like, Nope, we don't have time. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, what do you mean? Like, and I'm picturing all the guys sitting down on the bay doing nothing. <laughs> like, There's just a whole bunch of dudes sitting there like, what do we do now? But in the office, everybody's busy because, you know, there's X's coming up and there's friggin' reports that need to be brought up and there's things that need to be done and da, 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 all the extra um, administrative stuff. They're busy, but we weren't. Yeah. <laughs> and I was looking for them to give me stuff versus me creating stuff to do. And I just doing it. think that's like a hard thing for people to kind of um, pick up it. Like nowadays, oh yeah, a lot of people I see are expecting like things to kind of be handed to them more so than, Hey, you know, if you got a good idea and this is a a slight failing of leadership, like if you got people who got ideas, your job is to support them and let them, you know, see it through to the end and, and help them get wherever they want to go and and do these things. Like if it's helping the unit or, or just even that person themselves and keep them busy so they don't get into trouble. Um, Those are things that you uh, like, you seriously want to consider. So yeah, I kind of get what you're saying with this. Cause I mean, well, this podcast wouldn't be happening if <laughs> I didn't have some people support it exactly, and say like, Hey, we believe in that. We think that's a great idea. Why don't you go do that? And here you go. We'll help you however we can. Um, yeah, definitely that idle time. Yeah. It's, it's a real, it's a, like just a real killer for things. So, um, I, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it, you finish your point there, because uh, and then I'll ask about um, the deployments. Yeah, uh, so yeah, my, my basically my point was the fact that um, had I known 
had I known then what I know now, <laughs> things would have been very different, right? So that uh, I, I there were lots of lessons that I learned afterwards, just like that, where I was like, oh, like you just you kicking yourself how stupid you were two years ago or <laughs> ten years ago or eight, whatever, right? Um, Man, if we're not cringing about who we used to be, we're, we're not growing. Yes, you know, I'll, I'll only cringe if I stop cringing. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. It's one of those like those lessons are the pivotal moments that you can either learn from or not. And uh, this is a total side story, kind of random. My wife and I were driving down uh, the Hende a couple of days ago and we saw a police truck with a car pulled over. And as we were going past it, we saw one of the passengers was on the back trunk, like folded with their arms behind their back and another one was sitting on the side of the uh on the grass with their arms behind their back and i, I was like those guys are going to jail <laughs> and my wife is like are you sure i mean maybe they could just be resting and i'm like i mean pretty sure and uh we were kind of joking about it but <clears throat> i thought about it for a second and i was like you know that that moment right there for those two people that is a it I, it's hard to say this, but it's like a gift. It's like a moment of reflection that you could really <laughs> utilize in your life to really change your trajectory. Mm. Like just sitting there with handcuffs on, just on the side of the road could be a moment of absolute reflection and be like, what have I done? Where have I gotten here? And the sad part is, is that how many people actually take that moment yes. and use it to reflect, to change their ways, to do those things. And it, yeah. So it, there's kind of two, two ways point, people go with that is like you yeah. either, yeah, you either go, I screwed up and I have to take responsibility and I have to make change or these people are only picking on me because I'm this yeah. and it's everyone else's fault. And like, it's the narratives. <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah, you're, you're hundred percent correct. Um, I wonder too, is there anybody like, so as you're coming up through this, you said you didn't have a lot of, um, a lot of family involved in the military, uh, or those experiences, is there anyone that you're kind of, um, maybe that you cling to that you're like, uh, as like a mentor or you see as like a real leader or inspirational at this point, anyone that you're kind of like, I want to be like that guy or this person's like, even if it's your fire team partner, somebody that you're like, man, this guy's doing like a real kick-ass job and, you know, uh, keeps me going. There, there was one, um, name was Sergeant Sean Eads. He was a, Fantastic, fantastic leader, great dude. Uh, he was my first section commander, and uh, and then he got moved into became a the the, the, <clears throat> the troop recce sergeant, and he just awesome dude, awesome guy. Um, he got killed in Afghanistan on that tour, which was very challenging at the time because that was the guy. I was like, oh man, like that guy's awesome. I I need to be more like him. And then he died, and in my in my mind i was just like well if they got him dang <laughs> i did like uh um it, it made me really kind of question and again the sad part i didn't realize this until later on was the fact that the best thing i could have done in that moment was continue to emulate him throughout my time but it was such a i didn't have the or i didn't have the maturity at the time to really understand that I just looked at this guy as like, you know, almost, almost on a pedestal. Like I could never get that good. And so be, 
because of that, and like I was saying earlier, because I had never really dealt in any sort of depths of challenge, I was like, well, I'm just not going to. Yeah, and okay. so I kind of shuffled it off to the side, and it wasn't until many years later, actually just recently, probably within this last year, where I've really taken to heart this to really understand this, that that's what I have to do every day now is emulate that person, emulate that that idea of the man that was Sean back in the day. So okay. it is a, uh, it's a continual learning experience, but yeah, <laughs> he, he was the, uh, he was the one guy that I was looking at in order to, to be better. And then when he died, it just kind of like everything changed. Like, Dang. <laughs> and became, <clears throat> became much dip, more difficult. And I think I, because of that happening, I became really critical of the people around me. And I was just like, well, they're not like him. And therefore, everybody sucks. <laughs> and then, I, like I so said, you I found got, that you became a little more, uh, like a little more on edge or like you get agitated a little more? Oh, yeah. I became quite jaded too and very, um, like I said, like hyperly critical of mm. that guy didn't do the job right. But I had no concept of what the job right meant. I just knew that it wasn't what Sean would have put out. And again, like I said, that's like a pedestal version of it. So I had these expectations of everybody else that weren't real. And then because of that, I got very bitter about the skill of the people around me. And then I was like, screw these guys because they don't know. And I wonder too, like I would imagine at some point that he also thought that of somebody before him. Perhaps. Yeah. So maybe he's thinking that and, you know, like, so there's someone here and he's here and you're, you're, you know, you're here looking up at him. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's kind of a, a different dynamic, I guess, of you know, you're looking up to this guy and, and he might have at one point thought the same thing or had the same experience. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, maybe it, um, <laughs> the nice part is at least now that I look back on this is that I still had a very, uh, anything that I was going to do, if I was going to put work into anything, I was going to make sure that it was done up to high standard. Like if, and I, I've been told this many times by a few people <laughs> that, uh, that uh, by, at least I, at least I knew what I was talking about. So I used to talk a lot of, a lot of crap, right? <laughs> I would, you know, oh, that guy, blah, 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 or this thing isn't the way it's supposed to be. But I could always back it up. I could always give just as well as I got, and I could always, um, I could always come back with actual knowledge based off of what had happened. So you know, I could look at somebody as we were putting together bridges or something like that, and be like, "Oh, that guy's he can work harder," and they'd be like, "Oh yeah, how do you figure that?" And I would show them, I'd be like, "This is how you work harder, or this is how you work smarter, or this is how you lift up this bridge panel better. You're going to hurt yourself, that kind of stuff." So. I was I was never the greatest soldier in my regiment, but I could always, again, that, that work ethic of just work until the job's done. So you put in the effort now, and uh, then it's done. You don't have to do it twice, then you don't have to do it three times. You don't have to do it later. Uh, chance, I mean, the reality is young soldiers are going to face the same situation you did with the loss of a, of a key leader. What advice would you give, you know, if you could have, what advice would you give your young self or what advice would you give young soldiers when they're, when they're faced with that kind of loss? Honor it. That would be the big one. Um, and I, I didn't for many years. 
I, I took it as a, like a personal affront <laughs> to me, like how, how dared they make my life hard by not being around to teach me these things. Right. Um, so it was very victim mentality, uh, in that for many years, right up until actually this last year, August 20th, the, the day they died, um, that has been a, like, been a, a bad day for me. It's always been a, like, ah, oh, you know, I, I'm angry and upset and I'm mean to my kids and I'm, you know, it, like I, I start lashing out because I feel lost rather than what I have done this year and started last year, but this year really worked. Um, best I've ever had it was to really honor the memory by being the absolute best version of myself that I can be. Absolutely. Because that's, that's what, that's what I needed back then, but I wasn't, didn't have the maturity to actually understand that, but that is really what it, honor that, honor the legacy that they're passing on to you. Yeah. And kick ass every day. Keep doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I well said. And, um, I, I guess like we don't, you, you probably come across that quite a bit, maybe in the military where say there's, there's more casualties than you might see in law enforcement, but, um, definitely that's, that's something that I could see happening in law enforcement where just something, uh, anything like a, even serious injury happens to someone that's like a mentor and, you know, you, like you're saying, just how you see them and how you kind of internalize that and you process that. And then does that make you a better person? Are you using that to kind of uh, push yourself, elevate yourself? So yeah, it's a very good advice for people. Oh. I think it, and it applies just to everybody, right? You have a, you know, you have a, a loved one that passes on or, you know, has a medical issue or anything, right? You have your, your dog, right like yeah utilize that to be better don't don't utilize it so that you can feel sad all the time utilize the memory one of the things that um i've been using for a number of years now in the the jewish religion the the thing that we say when somebody dies is let their memory be a blessing yeah right and that is the key <clears throat> Excuse me. It, yeah. It's not a. It's not a question of you know, um, being remorseful or being um, down on the dumps or you know, death is a part of life. Everybody, anything that lives dies. So like that is a, it's an understanding, and I think military people probably and police and people that deal with death on a regular basis have a better understanding of that than most. But let their memory be a blessing. Don't look back on their memory and feel sad. It's a blessing. You got to know them. You got yeah, to exactly. Them. You got to enjoy yep. their presence. Like, enjoy it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, maybe we can move into uh, just talking about some of your de- uh, your time on deployment and just mm. what that looked like um, and, and uh, some of your experiences over there or some of the people that you were there with. So, kind of run us through uh, uh, your time in Afghanistan. Yeah, so we got there in uh, February of '08, and again, like '06 and '07 have been were pretty kinetic tours. Like they were running gunfights and you know kicking in doors and doing, you know, doing the game. They were yeah. it was taking taking um, <laughs> kicking ass and taking names. And so all of our training in '07 had been that 
style of warfare. So we're going to be like breaching doors and we're using shotguns and like we're, we're doing all of the, the close quarter battle kind of stuff. And then right before we got overseas, they started like hammering, like IEDs are a big thing now. Just so you guys are aware, IEDs are a thing. Like, be aware that these things are going to happen. And then we showed up, and it was, it was like all IEDs. <laughs> there was, it was just, they were everywhere. And wow. the run and gun fights were much less. They rarely engaged with us. I think I was in like four firefights over the eight months, something like that. Like, it, we we rarely got into a dust up. Just so people understand, is um, at this point in the in the Afghan war. Um, the reason there was a change is because Canadians were so effective. The, the only opportunity to strike it at, uh, coalition forces was through the use of, of stealth bombs of, of IEDs where up to that point, they'd been trying to challenge Canadians in open combat. And it, 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 it was kind of a one-way deal. Yeah. Um, there, the losses, you know, anybody who couldn't figure out how to stay away from the Canadians. Well, again, they didn't have a problem anymore. Uh, they'd be killed. So at that point, they, the only option that the bad guys had was to start trying to sneak bombs. Yeah, yeah, and they got they got pretty good at it. Like they there were, we we hit a number of them. Um, as, as like a battle group, when I say we, like as a battle group, we hit a lot of IEDs. We found a bunch of them. Um, my lab, we got blown up once. My my sergeant actually, when we, I think it was like a weekend or something like that. He was like, just so you guys like, I want you guys to put this in your head. It is not a question of if we get blown up. It is a question of when and how bad. Yeah. And that's it. And so again, one of those sobering moments was on our first. So we got there in February. We had been in country for about a week and a half. Um, we had just gotten out to the FOB. We were um, just kind of getting situated and everyone was sunburnt. <laughs> we were like brand new, right? And uh we got called out on this operation. A bunch of special forces guys had gotten trapped uh, north of us. And so they called us. It was uh, some American special forces. I was pretty, I'm pretty sure they're Green Berets. I've been told by other people that they were Rangers. I'm not 100% sure anymore. It's been so long. <laughs> I just mm-hmm. remember there were special forces guys. And uh, so we, like, being new, everybody was like, to the rescue! And so, like, it became a battle group friggin' movement. And there was the entire company of freaking infantry, the entire troop of tanks, the like squadron of engineers, like we all went. <laughs> and it was just like, everybody get involved. Yeah. So we, had this, we had this massive convoy that was like rolling up these, uh, these roads to try and get to these Americans. It took us two days to get there just from the like, oh, wow. speed that we were going. And, and of course, everyone's freaking out because we've been told IEDs, 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 IEDs. Yeah. So we're checking every friggin' bridge every culvert, every turn, every corner, like everything. I remember walking for like the first, probably, I would say in the range of like 10 to 15 kilometers of just like we were walking, constantly scanning the ground. We weren't even driving. We were just like slowly <laughs> walking our way up. Um, and the infantry uh, major was barking at my sergeant. of just like, we got to move faster. We got to move faster. We got to get there. We got to move faster. And he's like, I am moving at the speed. I am willing to risk my men. If you want to move faster, put your men up front. Mm-hmm. And he was like, fine. <laughs> Engineers back off. Infantry. will take this. And we were like, have fun boys. <laughs> and so we got back in our truck. And as soon as like we moved 
I think it was maybe 150, 200 meters. The infantry checked this culvert. They said it was clear. First tank goes over. Second tank goes over. Third vehicle, that infantry vehicle, stops dead. Uh, we have uh, wires sticking out of the road. Can we get some engineers up here? <laughs> like, okay. yes. So we run up there. Me and my uh, my my mass corp will run up there, and we're like, "Yeah, what do you got?" And they're like pointing at the tanks, and the tanks are looking at us, and they're like, "It's on the right side of the road, the right side of the road." And we're like looking on the right side of the road, going, "Like I don't, I don't see any wires here. I don't know what anybody's talking about." And then finally, uh, somebody jumps on our PRR net, and they're like, "The tanker's looking backwards." <laughs> And we're like, <laughs> and so we're like, oh, there they are. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. And uh, so we start looking at these wires. We start tracing them back. We find the battery pack on the side of the road that had been checked by the infantry. <laughs> <laughs> um, we checked uh, checked the battery pack. And while my mass corporal was exploiting that, I was watching the ground and I was like looking at where the wires were sticking out and they had been cut. So they were sticking out from two points. And I was like, that's, so we followed one way that goes to the battery pack. So that way it's probably going to go to the explosives. And I started following and I could just kind of see it every so often kind of dolphin up out of the sand. Mm, okay. Kind of pop up again. And so I'm following this trail and then I find this one spot in the center of the road that has um, a different color dirt. <laughs> it's hard to describe the fact that you get to a point and this is still early where you can see the difference between sand that's been like tossed on it. Yep. versus sand that's been there for a long time, right? There's there's a subtle... It's overturned, and it's, it's the moisture and everything in it, right? Like It's just like when you... you Well, people bury a body. <laughs> they can tell where you did stuff because things have been overturned. and Yeah. Disturbed. Yeah. 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 So that, that little bit of disturbed earth that I was looking at, and I'm like, that... That's probably what I think it is. And I walked over there and I grabbed my mask corporal. And I'm like, hey, man, like we, we got to look at this. And takes a, a little paintbrush and like... Whew, and there's a big old pressure plate right in the middle of the road. Like we're like, oh, sweet. And the, and as I'm looking at that, I see my boot print. Like, like pressure plate, boot print. Mm. It's like, hmm, hmm, hmm. Interesting. It's <laughs> like, okay, well, let's. Uh, so we know there's something here. We know there's a battery pack. It's been cut, but you know they might secondaries and all kinds of things over there. So we called up the EOD guys. EOD guys came up. They opened it up a little bit. It was like a 60 liter HME or uh, homemade explosives, 60 liters of homemade explosives. These things were designed to take out the American Humvees, right? So mm. wow. a big explosion. And uh, what had happened was that the tanks, because the tracks are wider, that wider than the wheel set of the vehicles, Hell yeah. they bridged the pressure plate and they cut the wire as the track went over. Holy and smokes. It was, yeah, it was a... Uh, Just the crazy, crazy luck that you run into sometimes, right? Like you got to be good yeah. to be lucky and lucky to be good type deal. 100%. Jeez. And so, like I said, that was, this was my first experience. This is our first operation. We'd been in country for maybe a week and a half at that point. Like we're all brand new and that's like, okay. And like sobered me up real fast. I was like, this is real. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, we went up to save those, um, those special forces guys. We got there picked up what was left of their RG-31 and then um, it's just kind of a fun portion of it but the I was looking as they were loading up the back of this RG-31 onto a flat deck to um, bring back to the base I was looking at the flat deck and I was looking at all the parts and I was looking at the flat deck 
I was looking at the parts and my math, my brain went math. I'm like, those things plus this thing does not equal that thing. We're going to have to get rid of something. And I immediately start pulling boxes of Z4 out of the back of the truck, right? <laughs> out of mm-hmm. my lap. And I'm like, oh, it's on, it's on. And I'm opening crates and I'm like getting all ready. And I see somebody, I see the major make that same realization to talk to my lieutenant. My lieutenant, they talk about her for a little bit and he comes over to my sergeant. My sergeant, like, look at me and I already got C4 out. I'm like, frapping madly. Like, are we, are we doing this stuff? And he's like, it's on. You guys got 15 minutes. Go. And I have never seen a group of engineers uh, tackle something so fast because we had dudes frapping charges and taping stuff up while other guys were loading it. And it's basically the RG had been cut at the, uh, the firewall. So it was just like an engine block, two tires, and it was just sitting on its side. And uh, we went to town. <laughs> so we had, we were stuffing C4 in here and inside here and up in there and all these. And we had strands of debt cord coming off everywhere. It looked like spaghetti was all over it. And at one point I had, um, I had both of my feet up on the engine block and I had my hands crammed into the oil pan and I was just like reefing it back. And my fire team partner was trying to jam a nine block charge of C4 in there <laughs> to try and get it inside the oil pan. And he was just bam. Bam, bam. And I got my fingers trying to peel this out so we can get it in. And as we were doing that, the, uh, the, the special forces first sergeant came around the corner and just like stopped, looked at us. And we were like, <laughs> <laughs> and he uh, looks like a bunch of monkeys on, on like, right? know, <laughs> on this we thing. We just and... kind of froze like, uh, <laughs> and he goes, y'all, y'all are crazy. <laughs> and we were like, and then he walked away and we just kept, <laughs> we got it. We put like 50, probably 50 blocks of C4 on that engine block. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, well, again, we're new, right? We're just like, yay. Explosives. Yeah. yeah. And so, this is cause, so it's like, it's too heavy to take everything back. You got to leave something, but you don't want to leave it for anyone to pick up. So yeah, exactly. Blow it yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. Just get rid of it. And so, yeah, we, uh, we loaded that thing up and then we got in our vehicle and we started taking the lead position back home and then our rear section so we had two engineer sections with us so the rear section came up and put another 50 blocks of c4 on there (laughs) (laughs) so it was from what i I, and i say 50 it was like a box and a half so it's about there's about 40 blocks per crate so about a box and a half so you know 50 to 60 i'm kind of averaging i don't really know exactly how much more than enough to vaporize everything Yes. Yeah, you're creating yeah. a so small we, nuclear explosion. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, it was it was probably around 100 blocks of C4 on that thing, and they did a BDA afterwards. And I think the biggest piece that they found was a piece of axle that was like the size of a like a hardball. So a bomb damage assessment. They went back and looked at what worked after that. What how it was after? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it worked. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, but that was, you know, and that it was indicative of, you know, what we were going to do on tour. That was basically the tour, um, for us was that we would be driving from place to place. We'd be looking for IDs on the way. We'd get to where we were going. We'd do whatever it is that needed to be done at that point in time, whether that was, you know, patrolling from A to B, if that was, um, going to deal with a weapons cache or uh, explosive cache, something like that. Or if we were, going to do a Shura or, you know, a meeting with the local elders. That, that was basically the tour. We were constantly just driving place to place to place to place, looking for IEDs, and then we'd get where we are going, we'd do our stuff, and then we'd, we'd disappear. And uh, out of the eight months I was there, I was on QRF for five of those eight months. 
because my sergeant would continually volunteer us for being on QRF duty. You're busy. Um, uh, it's not, I, I'm, I'm not sure why he did it. I've been told a number of things, but I'm not hundred percent sure why. Um, what I was told was that he really didn't like patrolling. He thought it was too dangerous. So he wanted to be in his, in the vehicle more often. So QRF, um, who are you quick reaction force for like the whole battle group? Battle group QRF. Yeah. Damn. So we were, we were in Q, we were in uh, Massengar and it was, I was thinking it was daily. Like we, there were days where we didn't come back all day long. So we would leave in the morning to a QRF call and then we'd leave that particular call once it got solved and we'd go to another one and then that would get solved and we'd go to another one. So it was very much just constant. So just so people are clear, how many engineers are, are how many people in a battle group and how many engineers in the battle group? Uh, battle group, there was, I think 2,500 in the battle group. Yep. And there are 120 engineers total for the battle group. You're, you're busy. And that was the other thing is that at the time, 2008, any movement required engineers, any movement, didn't matter where you went, didn't matter how long you were going to be. Just because the landscape is so littered with bombs everywhere. So it was, you were, we were just constantly rolling. We were constantly patrolling. We were constantly hitting cure, like just all the time, every day. There were days I remember getting kicked out of my rack at like two, three in the morning and like QRF call, let's go. And you're just half asleep. Okay, you get you get in the vehicle and you start putting your stuff on and you're you're kind of waking up as you're rolling out the gate. Yeah. And then we did we wouldn't get back until the next night of just calls, 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 and you'd just be friggin' fried and exhausted. And you get back to your rack and you pass out and you wake up. Giraffe, let's go. Did okay. you was a lot of your job um like I imagine a lot of it's the roadside IEDs, like stuff that's you know gonna take out the vehicles, but uh you must get a lot of like the, the something on like a, a man door, right? Like it, it's a little booby traps and different things set up. Do you get much of that? Um, at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of smaller booby traps. The booby traps that they were setting were huge. Like it was okay. Uh, uh, they were trying to take out our tanks at that point in time because we had just brought our uh, Leopard Two, the main battle tanks, in in '07. So it was like that was the biggest threat to the the insurgents at the time. So that all of the explosives were massive, massive. And they were set up really intelligently in terms of there was primaries that set off secondaries that once we engaged the secondary or, you know, set the secondary off and retreated or, you know, tried to move to another position to consolidate, there'd be a tertiary set up in the consolidation area and things like that. So like you're thinking two, three, four steps beyond the initial hit and those initial hits were were sometimes small like when we were doing foot patrols they'd be um like little russian pmns which are they'll take a leg off or they'll take off you know um they'll they'll debilitate one person Mm -hmm. and then once we start engaging our protocols which are you you set up a set up security medic starts to engage that then a secondary goes off which is usually remote at the time and then that would either engage a firefight or like when um uh mark campbell lost his legs that's that's how it started was it was an ambush and they moved to cover to engage the ambush and the secondary charge was set up in the cover position so they yeah they've kind of got it planned out like we think they're going to fall back to this spot 
And that's where we're well, going to Well, they would know. It yeah. wasn't even a thought. Like we had our procedures in place of mm. if this happens, then we do this. If this happens, then we do this. And they had they would do it to us over and over and over again. They would shoot at us three times just to see our reaction. Yeah, and, and learning. Once they had that reaction down, that's what they're going to do. At one point, I was watching. I was in the um, air century hatch, or uh, like in my lab, I was just kind of popped out. And I was a machine gunner, so I was out there a lot. But um, the we were watching the Kiwas, the American light helicopters, would fly these kind of swooping patterns back and forth and back and forth over top of enemy held areas so that the Taliban would get nervous and start shooting at the helicopters. And as soon as we saw them shooting the helicopters, we would call and fire from the artillery. Yeah. We'd be like, ha ha, take that. Um, but while I was sitting in Air Century Hatch, I noticed these little puffs of black smoke off in the distance. And I was like, that's weird. And it would like in midair, like nine, eight, eight, nine hundred meters above the ground, like, poof, poof, poof. and I was like, what is even happening? And we, I realized is that they were shooting RPGs into the sky to see how far they would go before they would explode. So they, they were trying to turn it into kind of like a flak system for the uh, helicopters. So as they were flying around, they would know how far they could shoot their RPGs up before they would hit one of those things. And uh, luckily for us, there was actually an Apache flying around the area. So <laughs> they were like, bang, and they got hit with a hellfire. It was pretty funny. But the, uh, <laughs> just like, that's the, what they would do. They're constantly testing to see what's going to work. What can we do to cause more casualties? What can we do to cause more casualties? And that's what it was always about was casualties, casualties, casualties. It was not about, a lot of these things weren't set up to kill anybody so much as they were meant to debilitate. And is that more, like, is that more of a tactic where, uh, like, cause if you have a casualty, now it's going to slow you down. Cause now you're going to have one or two people trying to work on that person. You take three people out of the equation. If someone's dead, you're kind of pushing past. And you can gauge, like, yeah, if you have a casualty that's dead, that's obviously dead, you can engage the firefight. Like, everybody's involved in that. Bang. Done. But if you have somebody down and they're screaming, that affects everybody first off, because yeah. you know, it's one of your friends that's on the ground screaming. But medic, TCCC, guys to move him around. So you're looking three, four dudes, minimum, that are going to be involved with one casualty that are now out of the fight. Yeah, and creating that that panic, the atmosphere of fear, right? And now it's affecting yeah. everybody if, if somebody's there screaming or hurt or whatever it might be. Yeah. So it's a uh, tough one. Yeah. On a, on a strategic level, a counterinsurgency can't defeat the troops on the ground. What it can defeat is the national will to continue to spill their own soldiers' blood on a foreign yeah. soil. Mm. So it's yeah. not so much to kill private logins or major Campbell it's to it's to create a, a lack of will back in the actual country that's sending the troops yeah and the people that are there like if you, you think about it this is once I got out of the military and I started working you know advocacy and I started seeing I, I went to do some equine therapy and I mean I still do it's, horses are magic when it comes to that um, but the reason that it, we work so well, especially GWAT um, veterans, is the fact that we're prey. Like ninety-five percent of the time in Afghanistan, we were being a, we were being hunted regularly. We were getting rocketed at night in our in our base camps. There, there was no point where you were like safe. safe. 
Right. Okay. So it was always um, this high level of tension for weeks and weeks and weeks. And um, you do kind of get used to it at one point. There was, I remember at one point, yeah, we had a rocket attack and I just kind of rolled over and I grabbed my armor and I just kind of pulled it on like a blanket and I was like, I'm oh, fucking just going to sleep. <laughs> and then uh, other times I had a, you know, my buddy and I were playing baseball on, a, on Xbox that I had brought with me and we were sitting there playing and we're like, <laughs> okay, there was only one. Cool. And we just kept playing. Yeah. <laughs> so you would throw our helmet on and we're like, okay, well, I guess that's that. Um, so you, you get, you get kind of used to it, but at the same time, that affects you later on because you, you don't realize the level of tension that you're just sitting at. You're like hovering at like a seven all the time um, versus <clears throat> being able to come down and completely regulate and be calm. You're just always kind of primed for something to happen. Oh my God, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. You got to be ready for it. And just, so it's a, it's a hard life. That, yeah. Um, for, I was there for eight months. Um, and yeah, that was, that was a long time. A long time. <laughs> well, one of the things uh, I want to make sure we talk about is uh, like the transition out. So you said you came back and it was pretty much peacetime, so not a whole lot going on. Um, is that what kind of led to you saying like, I'm, I've done enough here, I kind of want to go on to something else? Or was there anything else that kind of influenced you? I really, I really wanted to be, like I really liked the job. I really liked, like... I can't tell you how much I, I have so much pride in being an engineer and so much, um, you know, I got my little sapper bomb right here on my mic. Like I, I have a great pride in what I did and the job that we do. I had very little pride in my unit, very little pride in my unit. And that okay. fortunately is what started to <clears throat> degrade my will in terms of wanting to be there. Cause it was so, <clears throat> excuse me, my finished my tour come home and we did, you know, Cyprus and then we got back to the unit and there's, you have three days between when you get home from tour before going on post, uh, post tour leave. And you got to do some admin work, right? You got to sign into the base, you got to hand in some stuff. There's just like busy work to try and return things. And I got called into my new warrants office. You know, I think it was my second day back or something like that. And I walk in, I'm like, Hey, Warren, how's it going? Blah, blah, me and two of my guys. Uh, not my guys, but two of my friends. But, um, and we walked up and we're like, reporting, what can we do for you? And he's like, okay, I just want to make sure this is clear. Y'all just got back. Y'all think you're heroes, but you're still piece of shit frogs. Go down to the bay, shut the fuck up, and don't tell stories. Hmm. And we were like, Roger that, Warren. And like, my buddy of mine who was to my left he was like in that moment he's like i'm done yeah and he put his vr and he put his vr in that day and we were like like it just it, that kind of stuff that just ruined it for everybody <laughs> what do you think causes someone to to be like that like i mean there could be a, a million things i guess but ego insecurity that like hundred percent that is that was straight up ego insecurity he was afraid the fact that we just came back we're combat vets now he hadn't been there yet. Okay. Yeah. It was just one of those things of like, he, I don't know if he was jealous. I don't know what, like I didn't actually get into any of, I just, it was a mind blowing experience of like, what in the actual hell? Yeah. <laughs> and so my, my next thing was like, okay, well I just got to get back on tour because that's where 
you know, that's the army. That's the that's the army I signed up for. And like, I want to get back on tour. Whereas my buddy was just like, I'm done. Peace. And he was out. It, like it was within, I think it was like eight months later, he was gone. <clears throat> and uh, so I stayed in for a little while and I was like coming up on my five-year mark. Uh, I had been promoted to corporal. I Oh, and that was the other part. So I got back um, from tour, uh, was in a field troop, was ready to like, I was expecting to get back up on the run-up train and going back on courses and stuff like that. And I got told, oh, you, you know, you're actually pretty smart and you're good with computers. So we're going to put you in the intelligence cell. Okay. And I was like, but I'm not, I'm not an Intel guy. Why would you like, and they're like, no, we need an engineer in there because we get explosive reports. We need somebody that actually understands what those reports are. And I was like, okay, like, I guess. <laughs> like, I want to be <laughs> like, out in the field. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't want to, and I, I was literally in a locked office that I was the only one that had access to because I was the key holder. Right. And I was supposed to be the int clerk where I would just kind of collate stuff and, you know, make it easier for something like that. They're supposed to be an int O, like an int officer, like an actual intelligence officer. They're supposed to be an int NCO, so a sergeant or something above uh, my grade who actually does the, like, understanding of what the explosive styles are and does all that kind of, like, actually gathering that intelligence. And I got put in the office. I was the only guy there. And they're like, you're going to do the job of all three, so. Oh, man. Have fun. And I'm like, okay, am I going to get some sort of like intelligence course? Like, am I like, I don't know how to do any of this. And they're like, well, uh, we don't have time to send you on an intelligence courses. So figure it out. Right. Yeah. Figure it out. Yeah. And I was like, cool, man. So, you know, I had to do all my security clearances and I had to do all these things. And uh, my first day of having actual clearance where I could pull up the computer, I had logins and all that stuff. And I pulled up the, the stuff and it's like, um, Tet report, which is a tactical ex- uh, <clears throat> tactical exploitation um, report of IEDs. So when IEDs go off, there's a report drafted, right? And it's like it was this type, it was this big, it was blah 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 blah. And it was a friend of mine that it got killed. Mm. That was my first day, and that's like, how you found out about it. Yep. And then I had, and then I had to brief my CO on it because he was an engineer, and I was like, he was from two two CR, but I was like. Okay, I guess this is I guess this is my life now, and I I just kind of like it. I had to shut off for a little bit and do the job and try and do the work. But I was in there for another year and a half, just in the incel, doing that same thing of like, you know, my buddies would get killed, and I'd have to go brief the CO on it, and I'd get called in on my Sundays because I was the only one with access, and like all kinds of stuff. And it just started to like chip away at all of this. Like, I really want to do the job. I really wanted to do the job, and then it just kept chipping away of just like. This is not what I signed up for. This is not what I signed up for. It's not what I signed up for. Had an opportunity to go back on tour. Got back into the field troop. I'm like excited. I'm a corporal. I have some experience. I'm like, yeah, let's do this. And uh, I had a disagreement with a sergeant major at one point in time. And my name mysteriously came off tour. Mm. Again, those, those little things of just like, what am I even doing here? Like, what is this? And I had re-signed, I had signed an extension on my contract um, in order to go on tour. And then I got taken off tour. But I still had signed my contract. And I was like, I, I'm, if I put a contract down, if I put my name on something, I'm going to fulfill that. And 
So I had another three years to just sit there and be like, what the, and, and I was so bitter. I was so angry. I shouldn't have, like, <laughs> I was a senior corporal. You just kind of keep going down that hole. Yeah. Right. Well, and the way I looked at it, I was a senior corporal with combat experience that you're not taking on tour with you. Like it, that, that logic doesn't make sense. Why would you not take that person? <laughs> yeah. But I realized now also that I was friggin' angry. I was bitter. I was not willing to play nice with other people. I was not willing to deal with the BS of, you know, interpersonal freaking relationships. Why would you want to bring that person on tour? Right. And it wasn't until later on that I actually, you know, realized that. And it was actually when I was out of the military where I was like, of course. (laughs) So everything you're kind of projecting, like the, the feeling that everybody's getting from you and everything, they're like, I don't know if I want to send that guy. Yeah. 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 And I pro- like thinking about it, I probably would not have done well on that tour anyway. It was uh it was a cleanup tour, like we weren't doing ops, we weren't going on patrols, we weren't doing anything like that. So it wouldn't have it would have been that same same stuff that I was dealing with in the regiment just in Afghanistan. I was like, I'm I'm so done. And then I asked for I was like, I'm ready to VR. Um, I'm ready to get out, I'm ready to break this contract, I'm ready to just like get me the heck out of here. And my buddy was like, Well, man, I, I'm having a blast over here in Meaford. Why don't you come over here and be an instructor? And I was like, well, I need my, I need my leadership course first. And I'm not getting that. I keep asking for it and they're not sending me. So uh, I put in a memo or I talked to my career manager and he's like, so, you know, are you looking for any postings? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'd take, how about three CER Germany? I'd take that one. You want to send me over there? <laughs> and then, for a shot. Yeah, they're like, they're like, that's a sergeant's position. I'm like, I've been doing a sergeant's job for the last two years. Like, really? They're like, come on, like, just send me over there. And they're like, well, do you have a second option that you would like? And I was like, well, my buddy said Meaford would be a great spot. So I'd go there, but I need my master corporals before I can get there. And they're like, done. Okay. That- I was like, okay. Okay. So that next day, my, my RSM came down. And he's like, I hear you're looking for a posting. You need your mod six. You're leaving on Friday. Are you leaving on Monday? And it was a Friday. And I was like, <laughs> there's no saying okay. no at that point, I guess. <laughs> yep. And so, <clears throat> and at that point I was, I was a uh, common law with my wife at that point. So now like that it entered into a whole new challenge of my wife. We, I went, uh, imposed restrictions. So my wife stayed here in Edmonton and then I went to Ontario and I was there for about a year and a half, um, out there recru- training recruits, which was thankfully that was back to me doing my job. There was none of this yeah. whiny stuff. There was none of the interpersonal relationships. I showed up and they were like, are you capable? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, okay, get to work. And I was like, roger that. Let's do it. And started like working again. I started training recruits. I started, um, I was the only guy on base that had CMD uh, munitions disposal uh, qualifications. So they're like, you know, if we have a dud, can we call you? like yeah i'm sitting in my barracks room by myself <laughs> you want me to you want to call and have me blow something up yes <laughs> <laughs> no problem uh and meford has there's duds everywhere it was an old artillery range it was an old tank range it was an old aircraft or air force range like there is duds everywhere and so i got to do some really cool stuff i got i found a um or some other people found and called me out to some 76 mil sherman rounds that we had found we haven't used since World like War II. Yeah. yeah um and then uh we found some 106 recoilless rounds that i got called out to and 
like we haven't used these since the 70s and like and just, yeah 60s 70s yeah right and so just random like stuff that i'd have to look up and go oh interesting and i get to you know play the engineer again and i get to do my job and i was super excited about that i picture even if they're just like hey we're getting a new fridge in the canteen like you're like i'll blow that up <laughs> yep. give me the old one yeah exactly yeah and, yeah <laughs> and so they had uh the other fun thing was that they, because nobody had been qualified to do this stuff for so long, they had a mad pit, like a munitions awaiting disposal pit that was extensive. Like it was just this big pile of stuff that needed to get blown up. And I, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I did. It was just like, okay, here we go. Let's do this. And so, yeah, I got to do, I did probably more explosive work in a year and a half there than I did in six years in, at 1CR. Not oh, wow. Sure. But, uh, that's awesome. And, yeah, and I got to teach and I got to, you know, pass on my knowledge and I got to have recruits go through and I got to do all of the things that I, you know, I got to, that I aspired to. I had to attain, I had to not only attain, but maintain a really high standard because I was an instructor. Everyone was looking at me like you have to live. And it, the, did you find that like, it's, it's a weird transition when you realize you're the guy they're imitating. Like, did you notice after about two weeks? They start to walk like you. They start to use your phrases. They start to talk like you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a bit of an accent from, you know, Southern Alberta. Most people can't quite hear it, but there's a, like a, just a slight twang. And so when I would call drill, um, I, I, you can really hear it, right? Like there's a, like a layoff, right, layoff, right, layoff, right, layoff. And so as I would call drill, you could hear them start to, that, that little bit of a hint of an accent as they would repeat it to me as I would, uh, as we would call back and forth. So it was, uh, yeah, absolutely. They did start to do that. And I was, I was nominated as the, uh, the biggest dick instructor <laughs> while I was there in terms of like, I didn't put up with anything. You did anything out of, out, out of anything out of line. Everyone was getting it. And I was that <laughs> guy. Just, I was always there. And because I lived on base, because I was IR, it never stopped. Like I was always watching and I was always just like anybody I saw at a line, <laughs> knife hand out, <laughs> full send right away. So, uh, but at the same time I had, uh, some people that, uh, that got, went through their training, like I taught and then went, carried on through their training. They got posted to Edmonton when I got home and I ran into him on a, um, in, in the, the supermarket at one point and he was like, Hey, I scroll burls. And I'm like, you know, dude, it's just, it's just chance now. Like I'm not. I'm not that guy. <laughs> like, like, oh man, you know, I just, I wanted to tell you, like, you set me up for the next course. Yeah. That yeah. next course was so easy f- compared to what yeah. you put us through. And I was like, that's cool. excellent. <laughs> cool. It's like yeah, having so your own I, kids, I, I, right? I, I, like you just, right? you see uh, all the stuff you worked on kind of come into fruition when they, when that person develops and hopefully he goes on a good path. <laughs> hopefully you don't okay. become known as a problem person. <laughs> That's that, that's one thing uh, I imagine is the same with the engineers because the engineers are a much smaller inbred family than than the engineers. Absolutely, is like for now and evermore. Someone will ask a soldier like, "Who put you through?" Mm-hmm. And it's like, so you're putting your name on these guys. Yeah, that's these, the big these one. Guys and gals, like it's like you know who's responsible for your performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and that's it's one of the biggest uh, one of the biggest reasons why. You have to like, as at least in my mind, when I became an instructor, it was like, 
now you are the guy. You like if anybody leaves here that is deficient, that's on me. So yep. not gonna let that happen. And I made sure of it. They uh <laughs> I have this great story about uh <laughs> I got called a master sergeant once. And this happens all the time, right? Like you you know, Ben, when you're teaching people, there's a master corporal and a sergeant right. uh, as a command team in charge of a section. And so when you come in and people get flustered, they're like, they don't know who it is, right? So they're like, oh, master, uh, sergeant. Uh, yeah, right? sergeant, sir. Sergeant, sir. Yeah, and you're just like, uh. so I was like, uh, I walked into the room for inspection and they were like, uh, I can't remember how I said it. It was like, are you all ready for ins- inspection? They were like, yes, master, sergeant, master corporal. And I was just like, <laughs> oh, I think we need some extra training on the rank system here in the Canadian forces. There is no master sergeant. And uh, so I, I was like, okay, we're all going to do some chain push-ups. And I was like, since, but I'm not just going to pick on you guys like that. Can't do that. Everybody should learn this, the things that we all need to know. I can't let anybody else be deficient in this. So everybody out in the hallway, let's all get down and start doing some push-ups. <laughs> and uh, I, I do what, at the time, I called chain push-ups. So I was like, everyone's in the push-up position. One person. What is the first, what is the lowest enlisted rank in the Canadian Army? Private push-up move to the next person what is the second and, and i'd work my way up corporal master corporal sergeant blah blah blah, and did all of the we went through uh army non-commissioned and commissioned we went through navy non-commissioned and commissioned and then air force <laughs> non-commissioned and commissioned and the guys were just toast by the end of that and i was like okay so we're not gonna have any more mistakes on the rank structure anymore are we no master corporal i'm like good cool let's stand up everybody <laughs> went back to doing their stuff and about uh, three or four days later, I walked in on another group of people and I got called a master sergeant again. I was like, oh, I guess we need some more remedial training. Let's everybody back out here. And we did it again, except I made them spell the, uh, the rank stress. So it was like the uh, P, T, R. E, <laughs> P, T, L, all the way up and down, all three rank systems again, just to make sure that I was, and yeah, it was fun. <laughs> Makes me think <laughs> of, um, uh, drill instructor when I was at depot and uh, just like they they must just sit in their office and come up with ways to mess with people (laughs) 100% I remember like the very first day we were lining up and uh, we had to call them uh, like it's core uh, the core sergeant major came in and um, I I didn't like I didn't know anything I had no military experience or like with ranks or anything but it's core is C O R P S. So mm-hmm. I call him corpse sergeant major. <laughs> <laughs> and he went, he just basically tore a strip off me, uh, about him, something to do with like, you think I look dead to you? And, and just was like ripping into me. And like, I don't know what I said. It's like, that's how it's spelled. <laughs> it's like lieutenant and lieutenant. I I yep. think it should be lieutenant, but uh, lieutenant is somewhere in that word. I still don't understand. <laughs> so, yeah, asylum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's just funny. It it it's it it's funny how easy those mistakes are, and they become like, uh, like how does how does this reaction rate this mistake? Like, yes, things don't make sense. <laughs> but. Yeah, well, you're talking about that. Like I, I'm kind of reflecting on why it's done and and there's no doubt there's an element of fun to doing it you know it, to the one giving it um but there's some really valuable lessons uh you know i can imagine that 
calling somebody by the wrong rank when you're doing a casualty report has very real ramifications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, Corporal Smith instead of Sergeant Smith that that has a real meaning for both those fam- people's family. Mm-hmm. And like I I remember uh, I was on basic sniper course and I I kind of climbed down off the truck while holding my rifle, and the need to protect the optic was was paramount because it could be easily jarred out of alignment. Mm-hmm. Uh, which it obviously result in mission failure. So I, I got acquainted with knuckle push-ups and gravel. I am 56 years old and I still baby my optic. Mm-hmm. You know, those <laughs> lessons are real and they're lifelong. So it's, it's not just silly yeah. abuse. It's, it, there's, it's, it's with a purpose. There is silly abuse sometimes. Oh, absolutely. You know, <laughs> there, there is, but um, at the same time, you're right. Like those lessons are, and they're hammered in. Like it's not, it's not that we just, you know, I put a bunch of people on the, on the, on the ground. We're going to do pushups. Cool. Okay. Everyone. Now we're going to get up. Now we're going to keep moving it. They're like, as these pushups are happening, I'm doing pushups with them, yep. but I'm reiterating the fact that like, this is seriously important. If you need to talk to somebody and you need to, and you know who they are, you know what rank they are, then you can talk to them in a certain way. If yeah. you don't, then you're going to talk to them in a different way, which can affect how you work with people. Yeah. Right. If you call a major, a captain, it's not a big deal, but it's a big deal. Right. Like that's, that's not something that they're going to they'll be like, what? And yeah, immediately they're going to come at it from a, a defensive structure. So you're not gonna be able to communicate well with them, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right? And it's situation, uh, context dependent too, right? Like even like you're saying, you see them in the grocery store, you're like, yeah, it's just chance. But like when we're at the job, it, it's like that show of respect. Like I actually care to call you this and respect rank. And so it has meaning. Absolutely. And I mean, little things like that. I, I remember we did, uh, I was teaching in a, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a BMOQ land. So like a, a phase two officer course. And at that point when, with the officers, they teach, they call their own drill. So we just kind of walk in behind them while they do their you know, as they're moving from class to class, but they're calling their own drill and they're doing their own thing. And at one point, the uh, the course senior who was moving everyone around was like, attention, left, turn. And I, and I, like that little side eye that you just gave me, Ben, <laughs> I was like, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> like that, that is not okay. Yeah. But we have timings to meet. So, and I'm like, I sat there and I'm like, understand this, that the way in which you interact with your troops freaking matters we put some effort into it and we're going to do some remedial training later yep now go yeah and he still gave me kind of it was like a roger that mass corporal and he turned and he was a little bit louder but he w- didn't have that like there's a presence that you need when you're calling drill that if you don't have it it's obvious yeah and uh so they they walked off and we came back at the end of the day and i was like okay everybody i want y'all to understand this very clearly the first interaction you're ever going to have with your troops is usually going to be on the parade square. When you get called in, you're going to get posted to your unit and the CO is probably going to call everybody in and you're going to have to march up to your warrant and you're going to have to receive the high five. You're going to have to receive your, your new platoon or whatever it is. That's going to be the first interaction you're going to have with all of your troops. And if you can't do that squarely, if you can't do that with a measure of pride, every single one of those troops is going to have that same side eye glance of like, who the hell is this guy? Right? You can't even can't even come up with a proper salute, can't come up with a proper like halt. Like 
these little things, that's that's your first interaction. And then on top of that, you don't have the presence when you start call and drill. They're like most of the troops are just going to give up on you on that point, and then you're going to yeah. have an adversarial relationship just immediately because they're going to be yeah. like, "Well, who the fuck is this guy?" Right? Yeah, you start seeing so. like uh, uh, I'll say it's like uh, the the alpha dog uh, thing, but it's like yeah, they're just there's the lack of respect, and then they kind of maybe start to walk on you a bit or not listen quite to what you're saying. So you got to have that that presence. Right. And it's like, hey, I'm in charge here and I'm not taking shit from anybody. Right. Well, it's, it, it's even just a display of competence. Yes. Like, if, yeah. you know, if I walk up to a major and call him a captain, he's going to be like, wow, this guy can't even tell rank. Yeah. Uh, you know, so everyone else, everything else I do is assumed, you know, to be taken with a grain of salt. If a young officer mm-hmm. walks up in front of the tune and, and can't call drill, which is a silly and pointless activity, if they can't even do the, the simple things well, then it's going to be assumed that they can't do the important things well. Yeah. Exactly. It. Yeah. One of the things I got told uh, early on when we were overseas by my sergeant was like, you have to, you have to exude confidence in terms of anything that you're going to be reporting to anybody else of any trade anywhere. As an engineer, you need to be 100% confident in what you're saying. Whether you actually are or not, it has to come across that way. Es- especially when you're not. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Because usually everyone else is, is shitting themselves as well. Yes, but even if you are, especially if you're shooting yourself, that's the moment you've got to you've got to appear confident because yeah. everyone and, else needs you to. And there there was a point in time where we were on a patrol and it was uh, dark out and we needed a spot to bed down for the night and or bed down for a couple hours. And the infantry captain, the guy who was leading the patrol, came up to me and my fire team partner. He was like, "Can you guys clear that building?" And I was like, "Yes, sir." Yeah, yeah. right, <laughs> and. Had I said anything else, like we did it, and at the time I was like, I, you know, I'm pretty sure I can do it. <laughs> like, okay, let's let's go do it, right? Um, and we did clear the building, and we did bed down there. But had I gone, well, you know, I'm not really. Maybe we should talk to my sergeant. He would never ask me for anything ever again. Yeah, and he would never trust the word that I said about anything ever again. So, like, it, there would be a snap decision made in that moment that if you can't be in that moment, going, Roger that, got it, and then go do it. Whether or not, like, I could have easily as well said, yes, sir, and then gone and talked to my sergeant and done that. I could have just did what I did, which was the thing. But if I exuded anything other than that 100% confidence, then he would not have asked me for stuff again. He probably would have gone to somebody else in order to do it. Which played in later, because when his troops came and talked to me when we were on patrol, and he's like, how, how accurate is that metal detector? I'm like, good to go. No problem. They never asked me again. Yeah. They know you're squared away. They would walk in my footsteps. Exactly. So that's definitely part of it. Uh, Just we're coming up to the end of the time here. I want to make sure you get a chance to say uh, uh, like what you're doing now. So you got a couple podcasts you've done. You've got the the walk that you you were part of setting up. Um, Can you tell us what you've been doing and and some of the things that are uh, happening? Yeah, absolutely. So first off, you know, I'm a bit of a talker, as you can probably see. <laughs> my that was wife great. At one point, called my wife called me a uh, social butterfly, and I was like, "What? You're crazy! I don't like people at all." And she's like, "No, you, you talk to everybody uh, like a lot." And I was like, okay, so uh, I do. I do enjoy talking. So we appreciate you you having me on this long. Um, as for what I'm doing, yeah, we did the. Me and some people got the walk 
the Canadian War for Veterans off the ground six years ago. It is now in their sixth year. They're still running it. This last year, I had to step off so I could really dive into the collective and do the stuff that I'm doing right now. But the walk was designed as a a place that, <clears throat> you know, a, a position every year where people could just get together and walk, talk, and sit shoulder to shoulder, veteran, first responder, um, civilian, spouse, you name it, and just go for a walk, like share stories and talk and just be together because there was such a separation. And, you know, when we got started in 2018, there was this like, you know, soldiers were kind of held on this pedestal of like, oh, you know, we don't want to talk to them. They might be crazy, the PTSD thing. And uh, nobody really knew anything about soldiers. Yeah. And so we were like, how do we get vets and, you know, civilians, regular people together? Well. What's the easiest way to do that in a calm situation? Go for a walk. Everybody gets to, you know, you get some endorphins, you're outside, you're enjoying yourself. So um, they're, they're in the fall. It's actually coming up on the, it's this weekend, actually, this Saturday, Sunday, to do the Walk for Veterans. Uh, <clears throat> I guess this will be coming out in November, so <laughs> it's, it'll been long past by then. Is it here or is it a couple different places? It's in all over the place. So you got uh, the one in Edmonton we weren't able to get a team leader to take over for. So there's one in Wetaskiwin. I think there's, 12 or 13 locations that now in across Canada that wow. have walks. Um, so, and they're done yearly. You get a challenge coin every year you do it. So you get, you know, create a collection as well, which is pretty cool. And, um, and it, yeah, all the money raised goes to other veteran organizations. So, you know, you, you pay for your registration, you get your coin, and then uh, the money's raised gets, uh, it's like 80% goes to um, other veteran organizations and 28% is held for, you know, like, the website costs and all those administrative things. So yeah, um, we put basically everything back into the community to make sure that everyone gets those uh, opportunities. This year is the theme is, I believe, um, the military families and supporting the fact that the family, the family well, support is more right everything. Yeah, so that's, uh, and you can also do them uh, virtually as well. So you don't have to be in a walk location. You can, register for it and go for your walk on your own and then your coin will be sent to you in the mail. So you can do it. Okay. Cool. Um, and then the podcast, yeah, we had, I did uh, Tools for the Toolbox, did that for a couple of years and I, I haven't done any new episodes in quite a while because I've been working the collective since January 1. So um, the Tools for the Toolbox, they're still, they're still up, they're still available. You can still listen to them anywhere you do podcasts. Um, and it was me talking to other vets about the tools they use to manage you know their daily life and all that kind of stuff so i've talked about all kinds of things with all kinds of soldiers from you know reserve mechanics to british special service british special forces and kind of everything in between so like it's uh it's got a really great depth of information i think there's 140 100 something like oh, that wow. uh, episodes that you go through like wow. a lot. that's a good amount a chunk and then uh, the collective we've been doing since January 1st, um, Sean and I, and we have been going, we've done a live show every day since January 1st for an hour. <laughs> you guys are show. busy and you have yeah. tons of guests. Like, do you, yeah. is it just the two of you running this or, or do you have somebody yeah. booking these people too? It's all me. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> Sean, Sean is the, the larger strategic brain of this and like where we're going and how to, how to build the collective in itself. And I'm doing all the tactical stuff. So like I'm running the show, I'm doing all this, the scheduling, I'm making sure that the, everything's up online, everything's doing all that stuff. And um, yeah, we've been, we've hit a lot of really, you know, 
deep discussions. We've talked about all kinds of things from uh, anywhere from like mental health to um, martial arts to CQB to like, and just applying the lessons in life, like how to engage in life in a successful way. And we've hit it all, all of June, like 30 days in June was men's mental health month. We talked about hard hitting, difficult topics ranging from suicide and ideation to sexual dysfunction, to sleep, to, you know, youth interaction, like you name it. And we have been going hard, like, like you said, with all kinds of guests, um, we're from, uh, behavioral scientists to psychologists to, um, to, you know, chefs to like, (laughs) you name it. And from all kinds of walks of life, from military, from non-military, from first responding, from police, from like everybody. Yeah. If you, uh, you want to live a better life and you want to, you want to kick ass every day and come listen to the collective. Cause that's what we talk about. Good stuff. And I'll, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll have to grab a bunch of links from you. Anything you sure. need thrown yeah. up in the episode description, you know, send those my way. Um, Absolutely. But yeah. Uh, I'll say on recording, like, thanks. I really appreciate you coming on here and then all the stuff you do like with the collective, uh, I tune in when I can <laughs> and, um, I really like the conversations So you know, thanks for all the work and service you've done and the stuff you continue to do. So. It's my pleasure. It really is. I get to talk to cool people all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and add ben, Just like you guys. ben to your list there. He'll give you, he's great at conver, uh, conversations. So I've had him on a few times now and now he's co-hosting these. So yeah, it's a great guy. Outstanding. You're welcome to come on the collective anytime, Ben. Yeah. I'd like that. Good to listen to you, man. I appreciate it. It's uh, 